Welcome to Conversations in Community Voices. I'm Larry Boss, and I'm here with Paul Schreiner. We are two of the hosts of Conversations in Community Voices, and we have combined our programs over the past few months in order to focus on issues in the upcoming election. In addition, we have created a new program entitled ABC at Noon to also discuss issues in the forthcoming election. To facilitate the discussion of issues, we have invited all 19 candidates running for office in the city of Valparaiso to be interviewed here on WVLP. In the past few months, we have interviewed 12 of these candidates, including George Douglas, Evan Costas, Diana Reed, Susan Brown, Gilles Charrieri, Angie Crossan, Robert Cotton, Drew Wenger, Liz Werfel, Todd Essler, Aaron Stoich, and Peter Anderson. These interviews are all available at the WVLP Facebook page. Today we will interview a 13th, Bill Durnell. Hello. The rest of the candidates either declined our offer to be interviewed or never responded to our requests. Okay, And that included the other opponent for mayor. And and we should point out that we were very persistent in inviting people. So it wasn't that they they were unaware of this. Either they were too busy. Yeah. Or simply were uh, uncomfortable. Um, yeah, some some responded nicely and others people didn't respond. Can, right can I interject? I, I just want to say I'm very busy and I'm still uncomfortable with this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, we'll go on. This program will, will air on Monday, October 28th, and then again on Thursday, October 31st, and Saturday, November 2nd at noon, and then again on Sunday, November 3rd at 5 o'clock. Okay, and likely this program will run again several times before the election. Okay, uh, finally, the series of interviews are being supported in part by a grant from the Valparaiso Human Relations Commission Cultural Grants Program. Okay, so today we're going to talk to Bill Durnell, the Democratic candidate for mayor. Bill, welcome to Conversations and Community Voices. Thank you, um, gentlemen going to turn it over to my partner, Paul Schreiner, who will start the interrogation. Thank you, Larry. I might point out that all the previous interviews of candidates have been of a half-hour duration. Uh, we are giving both mayoral candidates, should the uh, Republican candidate opt to be interviewed, a full-hour interview because we feel like there's a bit of a uh, a need to explore the mayoral candidates a little more thoroughly. So, Bill Durnell, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, we're going to start out by giving you kind of a wide platform to begin. Mm-hmm. We wanted we wanted our listeners to know who you are. Mm-hmm. So, give us some background as your into your history, why you opted to run for mayor, and select the issues that you are most passionate about. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it to you, and uh, I'm not going to time this. Just blast ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, we've got an hour, right? Um, first of all, I want to thank you, Larry and Paul, for doing this show. Uh, I think this has been a great addition to our uh, campaign season. Uh, not many communities, I think, have this kind of opportunity on local radio, and I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to listen. Um, as far as who I am, I'm Bill Durnell. I've lived in Valparaiso for 19 years. Um, in fact, uh, night, I bought my first house on October 13th, uh, 2000, so just just past my 19-year anniversary here in town. Um, I grew up in a working-class family in Hammond. I had two brothers, 
a mom and a dad in a 900 square foot, three bedroom, one bathroom house. Um, I married my high school sweetheart. Shortly thereafter, moved to Chicago, and we spent the first four years of our lives together in Chicago. Um, we moved back to Northwest Indiana in the year 2000, as I said. Uh, and the reason is we wanted to start a business. We, at that time, were in the home remodeling business. Uh, I think you and I have talked about that before, Paul, on this show. We have. And, about uh, the mistake that was. <laughs> yeah, it was a hard, a hard lesson to learn, but that's what we did. Uh, and in moving back to Northwest Indiana directly from Chicago, uh, one of the things that Carrie and I were looking for was uh, more of a walkable city, an urban kind of feel to the extent that that's possible in Northwest Indiana. And so we set our eyes on either Valparaiso or Crown Point. And frankly, we came to Valparaiso first and we never made it to Crown Point. We just fell in love instantly with the city. Uh, we had dinner one night uh, while we were home shopping, I believe, at Don Quixote and uh, just, you know, walked the downtown even before the, the turnaround and the resurgence that we've seen in the last 16 years. Uh, we could just tell that this is a place that had great bones and great potential. And so we wanted to be here. Uh, for the first 15 years, we lived here uh, after a year of doing the small business thing uh, that didn't quite work out for me. Uh, I got a job in Chicago and I commuted every day, uh, you know, five days a week for, uh, let's say, 48 weeks out of the year. And for the most part, uh, that was okay with me. I was building a career, making a living, uh, had a great job at a great company where I got to do a lot of different kinds of interesting things from a career standpoint, which I hope we'll talk about. Um, but I just wanted to, um, or, or I should say that, uh, that things started to change for me, started to change in 2009 when our son Henry was born. Uh, by the time that he was in kindergarten and getting into sports and activities, I really started to realize that that's what, uh, that's what I was feeling like I was missing out on by being in Chicago uh, for work every day of the week. So I started to make some changes in my life. I got involved in my neighborhood association. Again, something we've talked about before. Um, I, three years ago, made the tough decision to quit my high-paying job in Chicago, and my wife and I bought a little local business here in town. So we're now the owners and operators of Roots Organic Juice Cafe on Lincoln Way. And as I said, we've operated that for three years. The business is just over seven years old. So we were customers well before we were the owners. And uh, we've just learned a lot and just absolutely love having the opportunity to do that. Running for mayor for me is an extension of this process that I've been going through for the last four years where um, I made the conscious decision to make Valpo the center of my life. And the reason I'm doing that is so that, um, number one, I love being here. And number two, I want it to remain the kind of place that is worthy of my son's generation's life and love. As far as the issues in this campaign that I'm passionate about, uh, well, I mentioned I'm deeply involved in my own neighborhood. I love uh, the idea of neighborhoods coming together on a regular basis and talking about how to improve their little corners of our city. Uh, I know that that's made some uh, tremendous strides, especially in the downtown neighborhoods that are, uh, I'm more familiar with. Um, a group in Bonta has emerged, uh, led by Brian McFadden. 
Um, Jesse Pfeiffer has always had a strong uh, neighborhood connection, even though they don't have a formal organization. Um, Melissa Osika and Kevin Pazer and others in uh, College Hill or Hilltop have uh, started to come together, and they've had uh, two summer block parties in a row now. In my own neighborhood, we just completed on Saturday our um, second annual neighborhood tree planting event in the fall. And so we've put over, I think, 65, almost 70 trees in the ground over the last two years just by coming together and cooperating with City Hall. And, uh, you know, again, as I said, just trying to make uh, our little corner of the city even better. Beyond neighborhoods, I'm also really passionate about our locally owned businesses. Um, being that I am a small business owner now, I really want to see our economic development focus on local ownership. We can, we've seen what happens when that ownership is not local. Um, there's less of a care about the people in this community by the, by the far off distant owners. And so uh, really how we develop economically and placing that emphasis on, on local ownership is really a part of my platform. Okay, thank you, Bill. You're welcome. Uh, let's, let's go on something related to this uh, to a little bit, and that is some persons, particularly persons having a different experience than you've had, and some persons, particularly persons of different race, religion, ethnicity, and or sexual orientation or low-income status have said that Valparaiso has not been a very welcoming community. What do you say to these persons, and what can be done to make this a more welcoming community in the eyes of all citizens? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> you okay? So Valparaiso has felt fairly welcoming to me. Of course, I, like you guys, am uh, white, a male, and uh, I'm married to somebody of the opposite sex. As we are. So... Uh, yeah, so for guys like us, uh, Valpo is welcoming, I, I think, for the most part. Um, I would suggest not to walk into some stores sometimes when you're when you're really dirty and don't look real real good. Be yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, and I, I know, Larry, that uh, you've been part of a study at uh, Valparaiso University, a longitudinal study that began back, I believe, as far as the 80s, 1980, uh, that that investigated and documented uh, bias-related incidents, uh, not just in Valparaiso, but throughout Northwest Indiana, and I believe even in uh, Northeast Illinois, uh, some communities over there. Um, the results of that study, if you break it down by community, uh, show that Valparaiso had more than two times the number of bias-related incidents compared to the next highest city, which is the city I grew up in, in, in Hammond. And so um, there's a history here, um, and we can go back even further than that, with the history of, um, you know, the desire of the KKK to buy VU and um, the sundown town billboards and things like that. Um, there's, there's a history here that uh, we're in progress. We're making progress on, I believe. But again, that's from my uh, perspective. So... Um, what, what we need to do to make this place more welcoming to more people is, is allow them space to talk about their lived experience, to share their stories, um, to uh, seek uh, reconciliation and, and, and uh, uh, 
justice basically when when incidents occur. Um, you know, I was I was proud that Valparaiso passed uh, the human rights ordinance several years ago, despite my opponent voting against it. Um, you know, those are steps in the right direction, but this is work that will never be done. We can't say, "Yep, we're a welcoming community. Let's move on." We can't. We can't ever say that. It's it's the type of thing that is generational. It's cultural. And culture is shaped by a lot of things, but one of the things it's shaped by is leadership from the top. I'd like to follow up on that. I'd like to believe that most of our current candidates, as well as the people in office now, are not hard-hearted people. I do, however, think that they are somewhat insensitive to the issues of a welcoming community because they're not exposed to, to people whose lives are significantly different than those white mm-hmm. middle-class folks that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. H- how would you avoid falling into that trap of simply going out about business as usual and really not, not knowing what the life was like for the Hispanic single mom, the African-American mm-hmm. young male, mm-hmm. the, the individual who's part of the LGBT community. How right. would you avoid that pothole? As mayor, um, I think we have the opportunity to appoint several dozen, I think maybe it's even 80 if you add up all the seats on all the boards and commissions that the mayor appoints. Um, it's a very large number of people. And I think it's critical that over time that those seats and, and those boards and commissions do reflect the diversity and the breadth of our community. So that's something that I'm definitely committed to doing. Um, and, and that should help so that when those conversations are taking place, whether they're about um, human relations or whether they're about disability access or whether they're about, um, you know, zoning, uh, the a breadth of ideas, a breadth of experiences are in the room uh, to, to listen to and be part of those conversations. So you would be proactive and reach out rather than passive and wait for incidences to occur. Yeah, I think you have to do both. You have to react. Um, right. uh, you know, you may remember about a year and a half ago in my neighborhood, uh, there was a graffiti incident um, that had some homophobic slur uh, spray painted on the side of a house and then on the side of a couple of cars and then a commercial building downtown. It was it's a pretty widespread incident for a one night uh, affair. Um, and so when those things happen, you, you do have to react, you do have to respond, but that's not all that happens. And like I said, the, the conversations that we're happening, that we're having rather on a whole range of topics every single day need to have a a more diverse, um, perspective in them. It's uh, a quarter after the hour. We have consumed a full 15 minutes already, Larry. This is Conversations with Larry Boss and Paul Schreiner, and we're talking to mayoral candidate Bill Durnell. Larry? Um, I think we may come back to that question again a little bit here, but in a related, another related issue, you talk about uh, in your vision on your webpage, uh, we need to open our city to more voices and so my question is, why do we need to do that at this particular point? Something specifically, some specific issue moving this? And how do you plan to accomplish this? Mm-hmm. Uh, w- 
Well, the why is because we deserve uh, to have a voice in shaping our own community. Um, now, that's not to say that everybody's voice is equal on every issue. I wouldn't ask, uh, for example, somebody like me to uh, design, you know, a traffic intersection. I, I wouldn't do that because I'm not an expert on on traffic. Well, one wonders if you perhaps <laughs> did design that one up by the, the Menards complex that is a nightmare every time we try to drive through. And I know it's in yeah. transition, so yeah. that was meant as yeah. humor. Um, yeah. So, so I'm not the one who would uh, opine on the technical design features of a roundabout, for example. Um, but uh, when it comes to the block level, you know, my block, my neighborhood, I have, I should have a voice in, in how that shared space um, comes together and what it looks like and how safe it is. And not really just from, you know, that that's an area where when it comes to traffic, frankly, I would take my neighbor's point of view over the traffic engineer's point of view because the traffic engineer isn't sitting on my front porch watching the cars speed by right. or seeing the kids almost get hit as they cross the, the crosswalk that's not painted. Um, so... That's why it's important. It's important because we each have a perspective that's valued, uh, are valuable. Um, we each have dignity, and and we each deserve a voice in designing our our, our common places. Um, you know, I was thinking about when I asked that question was that during the mayoral debate you referred to you were not part of the good old boys. Mm -hmm. I took that sort of as insinuation is that you thought that there was a series of good old boys and you're going to sort of break that down well to me there's there's no question in my mind that there's a good old boys network uh in valpo um, and it's funny to see people uh say they're in it and <laughs> and uh kind of gloat gloat about it a couple of facebook posts i saw after that debate uh come to mind but but yeah that that's part of it but i want to address the second part okay, of your yeah. first question which was how how would we go about making sure more voices are heard. Um, part of this is really low tech. It's getting out. It's walking neighborhoods with residents. Um, it's humbly observing where they struggle. And then another part of it perhaps is a little bit more technical or technological in, in the sense that, you know, it's 2019 and our website looks like it was built in 1999. Um, we really need to upgrade our, our website. We really need to th start thinking about a platform for civic engagement on issues that's broader than just the public hearing. The public hearing is fine. It's necessary. It's required by law, but it's not sufficient. And often decisions are made prior to that public hearing, or, or so the public suspects, because I've heard that. Yeah, I do hear that too. Um, and officially, of course, it's not the case that it's actually made because the, the, it's made after the public, the votes are taken after the public hearing. Um, however, there is a perception and a, and a um, suspicion, I guess is the word you used, that people are quote unquote read in on issues uh, well before the public knows about them. So, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. There are many communities out there who have thought about this um, and who've built uh, technical platforms that allow for greater public engagement. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, Lake, I think it's Lakewood, Colorado. They have a, a website called Lakewood Speaks. 
And anytime there's a BZA petition or a zoning, uh, I'm sorry, a plan commission petition or a city council petition, the petitioner has the opportunity to upload their documents, their video presentations, um, the proposed ordinance or resolutions that are involved. All of that gets digitally uploaded well in advance of the public hearing. People can review it when it's convenient for them. They can even create accounts and interact with the petitioner, ask questions before the public hearing. And I think if we do something like that, we just get, we end up in a better place because you get the, the concerns, the ideas on the table earlier. And the petitioner has an opportunity to, to listen and to respond to that. And so, uh, so, so I think it's a combination. The how is a combination of, of technology and just getting out in the neighborhoods and walking around with people and seeing their, their experience. You talk Can I about up on that, Paul? sure. That uh, in that statement in your vision, or you talk about continuing to support Velpo Next, and where does Velpo Next come into this whole program? Yeah, I've been on the board of Velpo Next for about a year and a half now. So I came on onto that board after its creation, and um, probably three and a half years after the orig- original uh, vision planning stage. Um, Velpo Next. I've heard it referred to by our current mayor as a once in a generation civic engagement opportunity. And it was a long-term vision plan. It was, uh, I think it was 25 to 35 years in in, uh, its scope. And so uh, on the one hand, I applaud that kind of forward thinking and that big dreaming. Uh, On the other hand, what I found as a member of the board is that, boy, that makes it really hard to be actionable because we're, we didn't break down the next step we, we need to take. We, we, we put it out there in these lofty aspirations, but we didn't really say, and here's how we're going to get there, right? Instead, what we did was we assigned the 43 different uh, uh, action points to mostly the city of Valparaiso. Uh, you know, there was this couple with the schools, um, a couple with the Valpo events team, um, one with the Valpo Next board, um, which was to become the civic engagement platform for the city. Um, but most, the vast majority, fell to some department head in the city of Valparaiso City Hall. And if we step, step back and take a look at that plan and say five years on, how have we done? The progress is pretty slow. You know, it's hard to see um, where we've made a lot of strides. Now, granted, there have been some that we've done well. Um, one of the statements in that vision plan was to reinvest in our community schools. And that we have, I feel, really done thanks to the voters and the acceptance of the the capital and operating referenda. Um, But there's so many others um, where where we either cherry pick the stuff we wanted to do or we haven't done anything at all. And um, so I think what's what's, uh, in store for Valpo Next is I do want to continue to support that kind of civic engagement, but I don't want it to be once in a generation. I want it to be much more regular. And I want the next update we make, which will hopefully be very shortly after um, my inauguration on January 1st. I hope the next, uh, I hope the next update that we make has a bit of a shorter term horizon so that we can be a little bit more actionable in our follow through. You talk, um, 
often about the value of local businesses mm-hmm. and the value of um, small businesses. I suppose local and small aren't necessarily synonymous, but they often are. And the need for uh, the city to be supportive of them somewhat in the way that they are supportive of the big box sort of businesses that come into town. I'm not just speaking about retail. Mm -hmm. One of the dilemmas is, and I've, I've been a small business owner in a couple of opportunities, is that wages paid by small businesses typically are low. I'm not sure I can give you any systematic analysis of that, mm-hmm. but that was my experience. Mm-hmm. And that's a problem in this town yeah, because wages is. are low and cost of living is not low. Yep. How might how might the city of Valparaiso impact that? Yeah. So, I mean, the hope is that, yeah, and I'm, like I said, a small business owner myself. Uh, one thing that we consciously do as business owners is we uh, – we made the conscious decision when we first bought the business that we're not going to pay anybody the minimum wage. I don't care whether you have no skills. If you've never had a job before, if you walk into Roots and you're applying for a job, you're going to start at a dollar higher than the minimum wage. And then on top of that, which is still, it's still very low, unserviceable very, very in terms low, of supporting, not, not a living wage. Right. A lot, of, a lot of our first time employees and our first time job holders are high school kids. And, and I don't think we have a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. But just from a philosophical standpoint, we're not going to pay, minimum wage in our business. And, and thanks to the generosity of our customers, given the fact that we're in food service, um, we actually are able to uh, give our employees $3 more per hour on average uh, through, through the tipping that's done by our customers. So uh, like I said, a, a no skill, first time job holder, high school kid is going to walk in at roots and probably make 11 to 1150 an hour, depending on whether it's the winter or the summertime tips are a little higher in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the people that have been with us longer who have more skills and more responsibilities do, do better than that. Now, are any of these, what I would call living wages where a single mother could survive? I would say, no, no, we're one location, uh, small cafe with about 14 employees. Um, almost all of, well, at least 10 of which are part-time. So that's, like you said, that's a problem. Um, what can we do about it? Well, my hope is that not all of our small businesses are small forever. What I would like to see us do is help our small businesses grow into medium-sized businesses. Um, because as more uh, sales are made, as more revenues come in, as more capital is made available to a company that's growing, um, the nature and the quality of those jobs gets better. So um, that's something that I don't really feel like has ever been seriously explored in Valparaiso, the idea of growing uh, growing our economic vitality from within. You know, we've tried the recruiting thing mm-hmm. from the outside. Um, we've tried the incubator thing where we try to start brand new companies from scratch. And neither of those... Uh, approaches has paid off very well. But I believe that for the companies that have been around and survived the startup phase, they're still small, but but they have a marketable, serviceable product that could be exported to other markets, whether that's, you know, across state lines or, you know, across the globe. Uh, We need to find these these companies. They're called stage two companies, you know, companies that have 
between 10 and 100 employees, between one and 50 million in revenue, and help them to, to, to grow. And if, you know, other, other communities have, have really embraced this approach, it's called economic gardening. It's trying to cultivate jobs from within the community, and it seems to pay off. You haven't said how you're going to do that, though. Well, it's the how is, um, uh, you know, like I said, other co- communities have done this, and it's a combination of uh, making resources available, whether it's uh, management, uh, training, market research, um, those kinds of things uh, get them in the hands of the business owners that are here locally, um, identify new opportunities, and, and, and help them along the journey of, of, of growing their business. That's how it's done in other places. And as, as I said, I, don't, I, don't, I think there's been some regional attempts at this. Uh, you know, I've seen some things coming out of Purdue Northwest. They have an innovation center there. Um, so uh, the, the thing that frustrates me is that when I look at and talk to our economic development people in Valpo, it's like they don't even, they don't even bring this idea up. You know, they're focused exclusively on incentives, incentivizing people which, you know, essentially are legalized bribes to get a company to come over here uh, from another location and, and, and establish a business. The emphasis has been on bringing in already established businesses that have uh, a need for yeah. labor as opposed to the emphasis on nurturing what's here. And you're saying your emphasis would be on the On, the on nurturing what's here. Absolutely. And the numbers... Um, I love to quote these numbers because uh, they're just so stark and they, they, they highlight the issue so well. When you look at the jobs created in Porter County from 2000 to 2016, which is the last data I found, um, 100,000 new jobs were created from startup businesses, 40,000 new jobs were created from existing business expansions, and only 8,000 were created from companies migrating here from other, from other places. If so, I add those up, I got 100 and- 50,000 yeah. new jobs in Porter County? Yeah, that's 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 the new job side. There's also the job destruction side. I, okay. didn't, I didn't include plant closings okay. and, and uh, things like uh, that to offset it. Right, Larry, we're halfway through the half hour. You want to? Yeah, I want to remind people you are listening to Conversations and Community Voices. I'm Larry Boss, and I'm with Paul Schreiner, and we're talking to Bill Durnell, who is the Democratic candidate for mayor. One comment about that, that it seems that this whole idea of bringing things in from the outside is also related to the idea of housing because your opponent has said what he wants to do is build high-quality houses to build, bring people into the community, basically, uh, to live here and you know and, and, and make a homeless place rather than mm-hmm. looking at the people already here, which brings up the question of housing. Okay, mm-hmm. Some persons have pointed out that while there seems to be plenty of housing, I think the mayoral, mayor... Republican mayoral candidate, they made the point in the debate though that we had apparently have plenty of affordable housing, um, uh, but to be plenty of housing available under development for persons in higher income brackets, there is a significant absence of quality housing for persons at all income levels. What can a city do to help create housing for people at all income levels, and especially persons at the lower income mm-hmm. levels? Yeah, another um, stat that I like to share with people, and this is beyond Valpo. This is just in the U.S. generally, but I think Valpo um, pretty much follows this this pattern. Um, when you look at the household makeup of of families or, or households in 
in America, 22% of households are married couples with children. And yet 60% of our housing stock is geared toward or designed for single families, meaning, you know, married couples with children. So there's a gigantic uh, disconnect between the housing stock that we have available and the current makeup of our American household. Um, now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why household composition is changing. You know, the divorce rate has increased over the last 30 years. Um, people are waiting longer to get married in the first place. Uh, people are living longer in their older, older years are, are there the latter part of their life. So um, there's all kinds of reason this is changing. And our housing, our new construction housing market has not adapted. It hasn't adapted. Um, so why hasn't it adapted? Usually a, a free and open market will accommodate all kinds of demands, right? Uh, part of the reason it hasn't adapted is because of federal policy, in my view. You know, federal tax policy that favors you know, home mortgage interest deductions, um, subsidizes the, you know, the financing of new, ho new home construction and existing homes within very strict um, parameters are certain, like, you know, to get a, a, a mortgage underwritten by Freddie Mac, you need to have certain, a certain profile. And that profile is a house that fits this, this mold, you know, this kind of standard single family mold. Um, another part of the reason I feel, um, the market's broken is because of state level policy and we can get into that. But basically my rub with this is that every renter, um, has twice the tax burden as a homeowner does. That's right. Um, and whether you're in Valpo or, or Vincennes, Indiana, I mean, it's just, that's the Indiana tax property tax rule. 1% homestead deduction max, uh, or not homestead deduction, but 1% maximum property tax rate for a homesteader homeowner and 2% for a rental property. But the renters are unaware of that because they're not paying that tax. They don't pay it The directly. owner is, it's, it's, it's simply added onto their rent. Mm -hmm. um, but but uh, Larry, your question was, what can we do as a city? And, mm -hmm. and the answer to those first two problems that I identified is not much. Maybe we can lobby the state to change our property tax rules, but uh, I think that's a long shot. Um, another reason though, we have a disconnect in the market in terms of the housing stock that's being constructed and what um, what our households really demand is because of local policies, local zoning policies in particular. Um, you know, everybody has, not everybody, many people have an ideal that uh, the single family home is, is an ideal. That's something to shoot for. Everybody wants it. You know, you're the king of your castle. You're the, um, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things wrapped up in home ownership uh, from from the from financial perspective and the emotional perspective. Um, so there's all these forces that are that are that are driving this. But I think some things we can do locally with uh, with with a little bit of effort are um, review and revise our local zoning policies in areas that are, whether they're inadvertent or intentional, um, that are causing the nature of our new home construction to be of a certain size and a certain cost level. 
Um, I think another thing we can do is take a really serious look at making it everybody's right to add an accessory dwelling unit to a property that they own. Um, right now, accessory dwelling units are kind of an exception unless they're built into the subdivision when it was originally platted. Um, and there's very few of those in our, in our community. Um, accessory dwelling units are simply, um, you know, you could, sometimes they're called granny flats. Uh, they might be above a garage or they might be a separate, uh, you know, foundation or they might be, you know, an addition on the back of somebody's house. Uh, but accessory dwelling units uh, leverage the existing land price, which is, as Paul knows, better than most, the biggest cost uh, or the, the biggest uh, impediment to uh, building more affordable housing is the cost of the land. So accessory dwelling units make the land cost essentially zero. Um, the last thing I'll say on this that we can do locally is uh, what you you guys have proposed in the Agenda for a Better Community. What, let's seat an advisory housing commission that meets regularly, monitors the situation in our housing stock, and makes recommendations on what we can do going forward. Can I ask a question then? Is the transportory, transportation oriented district, is that a done deal at this particular point in time? Or is there any possibility that there could be some kind of lower income housing included in that project? No, you're not. You're not in that position yet. I don't know. I yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I really expected that by this point there would be shovels in the ground on those housing developments, and they there are no shovels in the ground. So one is left to speculate uh, what's happening because there hasn't been a lot of updates coming out of the redevelopment commission. Uh, I speculate that the Flaherty and Collins developer that they awarded the the job to is is having trouble. Um, penciling it out, you know, making the numbers work. So that's why it hasn't happened. If it was a, if it was a good, you know, if it was a good thing, it probably, probably would be happening already. So I'm skeptical about its viability. I never did like the design. Um, I hope we get a do over on the residential or the mixed use side of that thing. I'm very happy that journeyman's coming to town. Uh, I know the Welter family well, and, uh, you know, they wanted to be in Indiana to begin with, and the, the, the distilling laws were just different when they started, so that's why they headed to Michigan. It's great to have them back home, but when it comes to the residential slash mixed-use side of that TOD, uh, I hope we get a do-over, frankly. I asked that question for a couple of reasons, one of which is because in the Valpo Next uh, you know, program, it says facilitate new downtown housing. The city should facilitate the development of more market rate and affordable multifamily housing close to or in downtown that is accessible and attractive to a diverse population, blah, 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 including minimum wage workers. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that, that's got to be a goal. I, I want to take exception with, and I know you guys have had this debate too, uh, the term affordable housing, right? It's as if there's... We don't use that term. We, I know, you know, you, we, you'd call it something I'm different. Just reading, but, cool. that, from Falpo Next. It's as if there's a, there's a real market, and then there's something less than that. There's something called affordable housing. But I want to go back to my earlier comment about markets. Free and open markets serve a variety of, of needs, right? Um, I am actually not a huge proponent 
of building housing that is by design and by its nature uh, dependent on outside subsidies of any kind. I know that the, given the world we live in and the things I just described for, with all the federal, state, and local policies, I know that that's sometimes necessary. But I would actually like to see us build housing that is market rate housing just at a lower level, a lower level of market rate, you know. Which means it has to be smaller and plainer and go on less expensive ground or smaller ground. You said it. That's that, that's that's it. We need you, smaller units. You you to match commented the smaller households. That you we commented earlier when you talked about your history that your your family, which was you and three siblings, uh, uh, two brothers, yes, two brothers. Okay, yeah. so three kids grew up in a nine hundred square foot house, mm-hmm. which is probably the experience of a good portion of our population who's past the age of fifty. Um, And this is not a question. This is just me ranting on and on. But I'm going to now change and ask a question. We have tried very hard on this, in this effort the last few months to allow the candidates to present themselves and to show us how they're different from their opponents. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to, we do not have the Republican candidate for mayor scheduled to talk to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. what qualities do you bring to the position of mayor that differ from the qualities that your opponent brings? And, sure. And, and and I don't know if that's asking you to badmouth him. No. I just want to talk no. about. I want to talk about how you and Matt are going to present our yeah. choice. No, no. The, uh, so I've gotten to know Matt just a tiny bit throughout this process and uh, and through watching him on city council for the last four years. Um, Prior to that, I didn't know him. Uh, There's a lot of things about Matt that are similar to me. We're both uh, about the same age. I believe he's one year older than I. Um, We're both uh, involved in business here, small business in Valpo. As we said, um, I own Roots Cafe and run a consulting company of my own. Matt uh, is president of Jifco, which I believe is owned by his father-in-law. or I'm sorry, his uh, stepfather, rather. and I know that he has other business ventures with other um, business people in town. Um, we both have young families uh, with kids in our public schools. Um, so there's, there's some things about us that are very similar. There's other areas, though, important areas where we're pretty different, you know, vastly different, actually. Um, a couple of them we've talked about already. Uh, We started off talking about a welcoming community and the human rights ordinance that was passed. My opponent voted against that, um, despite uh, our mayor's support for it, our current mayor's support for it. Um, Obviously, I would have supported that had I been on the council. I, um, in addition, I would say that uh, my opponent was born and raised here. never lived anywhere else except during his college years and has worked um, either in government or in his own family's business his whole career. I think he had a job at, um, at a steel mill early, early on. Uh, but I, I've lived in three different communities in my life, uh, actually four, because I spent six months down in, down in DeMott, Indiana, that I, that I skipped over between Chicago and Valpo. Um, 
but I was born in Ham, born in Hammond, raised in Hammond. I lived in Chicago for four years, and I have been in Valpo for 19 years now. Uh, I've worked in a wide variety of places, from the large corporate setting to my small businesses. Within the large corporate setting, I've done a wide variety of jobs, starting in finance, uh, moving into portfolio management, uh, working with operations. Uh, these are industrial repair facilities that were spread across North America. So I, I went from you know Southern California to to Montreal, uh, from the Western Plains of Alberta to the uh, marshes of Georgia. I've been around, I've seen lots of different kinds of things. I've, I've worked in lots of different kinds of environments. Um, I ended my corporate career in a technology group where I led a, a software delivery team or software development team. So I think the biggest difference, um, and again, not knowing Matt personally very well, but just getting to know him through this campaign, the biggest difference between him and me is that uh, Matt has a fairly narrow um uh, places where he's lived and places where he's worked. And I have had a much more diverse and, and ro robust background. Okay. <clears throat> I want to go back to the housing issue. And you said we needed, what you wanted to do was have market rate houses, which Paul suggested had to be smaller, you know, and more compact. I mean, how is the mayor to facilitate that? I mean, what are you, are you talking about standing up and, uh, you know, using a bully pulpit to talk about people, about smaller houses? Are you talking about using tax abatements and other kinds of things to to facilitate that market, which is not really following yeah. the market? Then I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Paul so, and I have talked about this for 20 yeah. years, about how you can get <laughs> people to, to talk. So I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I have the magic wand. Oh, okay. I, I, don't, I haven't found it yet. But, but I think, you know, um, the city, through its site review, through its zoning, um, has a big influence on what gets developed, where, and what it looks like. Um, some cases that's an advisory role, um, some cases that's a compliance role. Um, so we can influence uh, what gets built and what is allowed to be built uh, by, by reviewing and revising our zoning, as I said earlier. Um, so that's one part of it. I wouldn't call that a bully pulpit. I would call that let's get together. Let's talk about this issue as a community. Let's let's review our zoning, which hasn't been really substantially overhauled in at least 10 years. And let's consider things that would put land cost at zero, like accessory dwelling units. I'm not forcing accessory dwelling units on anybody. No. I'm just saying, if you would like an accessory dwelling unit on your above your garage, well, let's make that easy to do. Um, as opposed to hiring a lawyer and going through the BZA hoops. Um, on the incentive side, you know, as I said, I, I think there are state and federal grants available that we haven't lately taken advantage of. And I think the, the what's it called? The Community Development Corporation needs to be revived in order to kind of get access to those. I would support that, but I am not really a fan of again, building housing that is dependent on subsidy by its nature. I would much rather see us go this market route, just expanding the definition about what market means. Mind people, we are listening to conversations in community voices. <clears throat> um, what's up to my voice anyway? This is Larry Boss, and we're here with Paul Schreiner, and we're talking to Bill Darnell, the uh, Democratic mayoral candidate. And we have about, <clears throat> about 10 minutes to go. 
So I'm going to try to spread this out just a little bit. One of the uh, city council candidates strongly uh, identifies with the issue of the environment. And Valparaiso is certainly a part of that, but a very small part of that. But he advocates that if we don't address this problem from a national, state, local, and world level, but he also said local, we're going to be in deep trouble. Do you agree with that? And, and, and do you have thoughts on how we might address yeah. the issue? Um, uh, so the question is, is global warming a hoax? Um, I, I think the answer to that is no. I believe global warming is happening. Uh, it's pretty clear. Um, how it manifests in local weather and climates and things varies widely, um, depending on where you're at. It is vividly impacting our weather. Yes. It seems to me, as a guy who spent 35 years going outside in January to pound shingles on a roof, uh, we don't have the weather we used to have. Yeah, it, I, I would agree. I mean, it, it's anecdotal, but I, I, I seem to feel it uh, as well. Um, I think it was uh, a couple of years ago, but we had two 100-year rains back-to-back, -back, like right. in back-to-back -back years or something like that. So, so yeah, the, the, the weather and the climate are changing. Um, I would go so far as to say it, it likely is man-made or man uh, because of, of what we're doing as humans on this planet. Um, so because it was man-made, it can be uh, influenced. Uh, hopefully, it's not too late. Um, but as you said, it's a huge and complex issue that, that affects the globe, not just, um, not just Valparaiso. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm a huge fan of neighborhoods and that everybody's uh, local experience or local uh, uh, opinions matter deeply to them. So I want to empower, encourage, and uh, enable people to make better uh, decisions that are better for the climate. Again, I can talk a little bit about what we do in my own own small business where we being in the food service industry we use all um, compostable uh, food service items you know our for, including our single use straws which which uh, you know are getting a bad rap these days uh, all of our items are compostable we should encourage other other businesses to adopt that but probably from a city perspective the the bigger issues are you know our fleet I think we have a gasoline fleet of buses. Um, we own a lot of trucks from fire trucks to public works, um, to the parks department. All of those over time should be, can be converted to lower emitting uh, forms of fuel, including electric where possible. Um, we can install more uh, electric vehicle charging stations throughout our par public parking lots. I know we've got a couple of those today, but, but I know people that literally drive blocks to get to one um, so that they can charge their vehicle. That should be a little bit more easy to get access to. So that encourages the adoption of electric vehicles by our, by our, by our residents. Um, I, you know, to sit here and list a bunch of, I'm not an expert on the environment, but as you said, Gilles Charrier, he's passionate about it. Um, so uh, what I want to do is get people excited about this and, and what I've learned from my corporate career and even in my own small business, a lot of times uh, 
the right thing to do for the environment is also a good thing to do from a business standpoint. So in a lot of cases, you save money, it makes sense, and we're, we're reducing our impact on the, on the globe. I just have to add one thing from your own sustainability plan here. Study and, and test curbside compost pickup services. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that one. <laughs> I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, we have a composter and got to be very careful with the smell. Yeah. Et yeah. I can see everybody with, you know, anyway. Paul and I have been talking about this for a long time. And uh, because you're a CPA, mm-hmm. you're going to help us answer this question. Okay. Two plus two is According four. to our looking at the local government finance page, Valparaiso was in debt for $81 million. Okay. okay. And then if you look at the school, they're in debt. Schools are in debt for another $10 million. Oh, I think it's more than that. Pardon? I think the schools is higher than that because the operating re- I, the, I the capital referendum was. <clears throat> well, that's that, what it said today. That was like 150 Okay. But anyway, even if whatever it is, it's, we're talking about pushing $100 million. At the uh, one forum where they had <clears throat> the at-large candidates, George Zogos said, our finances, that's one of the best-kept secrets in the whole place because it's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Liz Werfel point, said that's probably the point because it, it is a well-kept secret, basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, is the city in trouble? Uh, it depends on how what you expect, I guess, of your city. Um, so if, if I'm a bondholder of the city of Valparaiso's bonds, should I be worried? Uh, the answer to that is probably no. You know, yeah. uh, you know we're double A rated. Uh, we're going to pay our bills, especially to the bondholders. I, I don't think we're in trouble of defaulting uh, anytime soon in the financial sense. Um, but that's not the only kind of default that there is, right? There's, there's the default of, of letting neighborhoods decline. Um, if you walk through our older neighborhoods downtown, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of deferred maintenance out there that hasn't been done. And that's, I'm just speaking of the things that we can see. I have no idea what's going on underneath the ground in our you know, sewers and water systems and things like that. So, um, what I would say is, uh, I think we're in bigger financial trouble than we realize, and the reason I feel comfortable saying that is because of what I see when I look around downtown, not, not downtown per se, because we've spent a lot of money there, but in our downtown neighborhoods, in our original neighborhoods that have been here the longest, they're in the worst shape. Yep. And there's no, uh, I don't see any five-year, 10-year master plan to, to change that. You know, uh, everybody's focused on the next big thing on the edge of town, not how we're going to revitalize our, da- our downtown neighborhoods. So uh, this is, uh, we mentioned earlier, the 1% tax caps, 2% on, on properties. You know, cities in Indiana have a bad business model. You know, the revenues are capped and their expenses are growing every year. Um, so what we need to be very diligent and careful about doing is uh we shouldn't add any more infrastructure to what we already have. We need to maintain what we've got before we start adding. And one of the solutions for that indebtedness and to maintain that AA rating is to make sure that um, the value of property continues to increase. Mm -hmm. 
And that in itself is a hindrance to creating the affordability that we talked about earlier. Yeah. In other words, the relationship between the kinds <clears throat> of future buildings we put will impact the ability of the city to produce revenue. And I see those two as bumpy heads. Did I make myself clear? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Rising, uh, rising property values do impact housing costs. And that precludes certain people being able to afford to live here. Larry, you gave me the two-minute signal, so we... Well, we let's turn it back over to Bill and say, you got two minutes. Um, what else would you like to say? Well, I just want to say thank you guys again for doing this. Um, not just this conversation we've had here today, but all of them that you've opened up to uh, our listeners of WVLP. Um, I am not a politician. I've never run for office before. We're... Um, we're in a, a very tight race here. It's coming down to the wire. And I believe it's a coin flip right at this moment. You know, it's a coin flip in terms of who's going to come out on top. Um, but if I'm chosen or when I'm chosen on November 5th by, by the voters, I am ready to truly serve based on my business background, based on my life experience. I'm ready to step into City Hall and open it up to more voices to make our financial situation more transparent, um, to help our local businesses grow, to strengthen our neighborhoods, and to continue to grow, but do so in a way that is uh, financially productive. So, I'm ready. You got 30 seconds. Larry? Well, I just want to thank Bill for coming here and taking the time to do this and remind people this will play uh, this Monday and then Thursday and Saturday and Sunday again. On uh, Saturday and, and Thursday, it'll be at noon. And on Sunday, it'll be at 5 o'clock. So if you miss part of it, you can listen to the whole thing. And again, this will also be put on Facebook along with all the other uh, interviews we've done. So go to the WVLP Facebook page and you can find interviews. Thank you, Bill Grinnell. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. 